Diamonds are forever, as the saying goes, imparts a sense of strength, legacy, and significance. From a geological point of view, diamonds, formed over millions of years, are indeed ancient and enduring. From a cultural standpoint, however, the concept of a mass market for diamonds in the form of wedding rings and the like is a relatively new concept. Tonight we explore how this phenomenon came to be, the mining and distribution of diamonds, and the major players behind this multi-billion dollar a year industry. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time, dear. The only the most Hello, welcome to the show. This is, I don't know, the third or fourth show under the dome. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well and obeying the dictates of your local overlords. Uh, I am Nick and I'm joined today by everyone. Hans, Hank, Adam, how are you guys all doing? Surviving. Done with my last can of beans. I'm doing okay. Um, just wanted to thank uh, somebody on the blockchain. We got about 50 bucks in Bitcoin. Thank you. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, well, as I take a sip from my white monster, uh, today I wanted to d- have a discussion about uh, what is commonly known as uh, the Jew's best friend or the diamond. And not knowing precisely where to start with this, I figure people are loosely familiar with certain aspects of this. I mean, we, we have discussed, haven't we, Adam, discussed this a little bit before in the context of an episode on South Africa that I don't believe I was present for? We, we, we talked a little bit about how critical that industry is. Um, we actually had J.O. on, and he was effect- effectively protecting the most precious resource of South Africa, which appears to be the hardest natural known substance on Earth, the diamond. Yes, and there's a lot that we could talk about in terms of uh, Cecil Rhodes, for example, but he would deserve, I think, his own show. But at the time, I mean, that was a great discovery, right? The South Af- Diamonds in South Africa. Because yeah. prior to that... I, I believe had... the, the, the Dutch were there. I mean, I don't think this is disputed, but the, the Boer or the Afrikaner, whichever you want to distinguish, was established in that area of the world at least 400 years ago. And they came from the Netherlands primarily. I think there were some French as well. But the English really became interested after the discovery of diamonds. That's my my understanding of it. And that's when the wars started. Yeah, and the, the, the Afrikaners actually had a lot of disputes early on. They didn't like the when the prospectors started to show up around the like, you know, late 1860s or so. Uh, they had started to have disputes that were actually turning quickly into armed disputes with the English prospectors. And the English prospectors, I forget exactly what they called it, but it was something like, uh, you know, they uh, 
prospectors civil union or something like that. They, they tried to make their own little pseudo state. And eventually the crown got involved and they were absorbed back into it. But the, the most famous diamond merchant firm that everyone has heard takes its name, of course, from a pair of Afrikaner brothers, the De Beers brothers. And they sold their their plot of land that they had uh, to one of these prospecting syndicates. And it was, uh, I think, sold for something close to 6,000 pounds. And Cecil Rhodes then comes in and buys these concessions up and, you know, forms various firms and buys other firms out, leading to the creation of the Diamond Syndicate. And that piece of land that was once the De Beers Brothers property was for quite some time the largest uh, diamond producing site in the world. Uh, up until, I think, in early 20th century, something larger was in the Transvaal, was discovered. But it was for a time uh, the largest, and the Diamond Syndicate that Rhodes formed itself was then the largest uh, producer of diamonds, controlling something like 90% of the entire world. Then, of course, came in the Jews, uh, because, you know, create a <laughs> diamond syndicate, who do you expect to come to control it? And that was in the form of the Oppenheimers, which in the 1930s was Robert Oppenheimer, and, and the, he was succeeded by Harry Oppenheimer, and then lastly by Nicky Oppenheimer. And they were effectively, De Beers was the, was the diamond syndicate. And you know, the policy was obvious what they would do is they would restrict the supply of rough diamonds when the prices on the retail market were low and then when the prices rose again of course they would unleash their some supply of uh, the rough diamonds and the way that this process worked of how it sold i i, I found very interesting when I was, I was reading about this some of this i did not know and that was that basically they had like a limited pool of clientele that they hand selected. I think it was like 160 or something like that. And their the criteria for becoming one of these clients is, you know, totally opaque. It's but they they hand selected these clients and then those are the ones that they would sell to. And then the way that would work is then they had these brokers and then there were only a few established brokers, like a very few. And the clients would negotiate the price through the broker with the product being totally unseen. And when they arrive, or their proxy, what have you, arrives to to uh, buy the, the diamonds, it would be brought in these things, uh, these boxes that would have been selected by, you know, to beers people. And that's how, it, then they would go through the supply chain after that, on, on all the way on down to your local Jew jewelry store. So, uh, do you guys want to have anything to add or want to discuss before I go further with this? Well, so when when was the the Jewish trade in diamonds really um, solidified worldwide? Obviously, uh, nowadays we know that uh, Antwerp, New York, Tel Aviv, they play huge roles in the movement of diamonds. The pricing, the the cutting. A uh, friend of mine actually used to live in Antwerp was saying that a lot of the cutting has actually moved to places like India, believe it or not, because of the oh, of labor costs. Yeah. But the trade and and control and merchandising is still very Jewish well, in those places. Me, so when did that happen? Like when, when was those okay, networks? So formed? first of all, it's a very ancient thing with the Jews. Uh, and Antwerp has been a center of this for a very long time. For example, the, uh, that's where they took the, uh, or rather that's where they brought in the cutters. I don't, they didn't physically take it there, but the, uh, uh what do you call it? the, uh, Kali Nur 
which sits on the on the uh, in the crown jewels now, the, mm. the great the great diamond of the Raj. That uh, they were the ones who who uh, recut that because when it was brought when it was brought to England, uh, the the original the way the Indian diamonds were, they would be done for weight, uh, not so much for, for luster. You cut in reserve the size and uh, the the british press and the you know the royalty and everything were all a little bit unimpressed when they saw this when it was brought is this fabled jewel and so they had to recut and of course the people they had to recut it were jews from antwerp and uh, you're right though adam that there there was a great decline in this because as with everything and this is why the uh, diamonds are valuable to Jews is because they're very easy to hide and you know you can pick this is a great store of wealth that you can hide easily and when you get ran out of a country because people get sick of your criminal behavior you can easily pack up these diamonds and flee and in the case of Antwerp you had for example in the 1970s uh, there were some 20,000 diamond cutters there and by the 1990s there were only some 3,000 uh, and yes you're right it was India where uh, cutting moved to on mass scale because, of course, you had the child labor and the sweatshops and what mm-hmm. have you. Uh, however, anything that's really large would still be taken to Antwerp or to Tel Aviv or perhaps to New York City's Diamond District. But these are all, of course, hotbeds of international criminal activity, and diamonds are a perfect uh, form of way to launder money that is you know, obtained through the sale of uh, narcotics and arms and whatever other criminal activities the international Jewish mafia engaged in. I'm actually looking up how do you cut a diamond. This is something that is interesting to me because I do a lot of uh, cutting of hard materials, you know, steel and things like that. And, you know, it's actually not that hard if you have a, if you have a wheel. Uh, you just have to move it at a very high speed and have an, a, a, sh- a sharp enough material inside of it to effectively cut off almost molecule by molecule the little cutting uh, channel that you're trying to form. But in the case of diamonds, because they're so hard, I, I don't quite know how it's done. But it, it did sort of occur to me as we're discussing these cuttings. And since it's an, it's an ancient trade, it must have been something that was uh, very, very refined uh, of a process to... Um, have been focused and developed on uh, before modern technology. And so it just kind of intrigues me um, how this came about. Anybody know how to, how to cut a diamond? I do not know, but I know that it was something that was practiced in India uh, many, many thousands of years ago. Even things that are really hard, you can kind of uh, chip away uh, at them uh, on the side yeah yeah if you if you apply enough force with a chisel point i guess i guess things will crack that's that's what i'm assuming what they're trying to do here well it's interesting i just watched uh and i know that Ed, hank has seen this movie as well so I, I watched this film called uncut gems and <laughs> hard recommend <laughs> <laughs> I, I recommend it with with caveat. I think that a lot of our audience would find a lot of, uh, say, red meat to be found there. It is an explicitly Jewish film about a the Jewiest Jew you could possibly find in the Diamond District, played by Adam Sandler, and it follows sort of the model of some of the films Hank and I were discussing earlier of films maybe like Friends of Eddie Quayle or uh, Bad Lieutenant or something like this where you have the the spiral of 
basically he's he's just jewing everyone and his jewing is sort of starts to catch up to him and he's you know involved in gambling etc but it shows a it, it, it's so he's unabashedly the most annoying possible character that you could have uh, even his wife thinks so but i won't spoil too much of the movie i would just say uh, i could recommend it if you want to watch something that's a very it's it's not a, it's not something that's supposed to be presented in a flattering way to a non-Jewish audience, which is kind of strange because not a lot of movies of this sort get made. But one of the dynamics that shows in that is that he's not really interested so much in the jewels themselves. I mean, there's so clearly a means to an end, and he gets one of the, this famous basketball American uh, interested in this opal, which is the, the sort of the Maltese Falcon of the film. And the the African is is like fascinated by this and thinks it has like magical powers and it will make him win at the basketball. Uh, whereas to the Jew, it's simply a means to an end. And oh. I think that that dynamic has has played out throughout the centuries, where people are you know non Jews are are dazzled by these things. It's like they're like the symbol reels, you know. But the the Jews themselves don't seem to be caught up in the in the lure and the mystique of these gems. Well, it's interesting, kind of the uh, the few bits of the movie. It's not really about the diamond trade, like you said. It's the uh, the MacGuffin of the whole uh, endeavor. But it's uh, it is funny um, the uh, the bits that they do show into that uh, that trade. Because, for instance, when he uh, is unpackaging the uh, the uh, the the opal. Uh, that's kind of the uh, the focal point of the movie. Of course, uh, it arrives uh, deep in the belly of some uh, some fish that he's forced to disembowel because, of course, no taxes are paid at any point uh, during uh, any any portion of the diamond uh, trade, at least on the wholesale uh, level, because they yeah. are very easy to uh, smuggle, and the uh, you know the markup uh, is very. Hi, there's there's like a whole subgenre of kind of uh, uh, semi oblivious uh, economic studies, uh, like Stephen Levitt, the uh, the uh, free economics guy, is kind of uh, notorious for this uh, when he talks about well, why why exactly is it that Jews control the diamond trade? Uh, you know, we need a microeconomic analysis of this. And uh, it turns out that it's because of their extremely low transaction costs. (laughs) And what is meant by extremely low transaction costs is that at no point is anybody actually operating on the books. Mm -hmm. At no point is anybody ever uh, actually paying taxes. At no point is anybody actually... Uh, paying taxes on the uh, the loans um, that they're uh, receiving from other people. Um, essentially, it's a 100% uh, intra-community trade where your intra-community reputation is the only uh, currency that matters. And, and as a result, it's very easy to uh, be fronted several you know million dollars worth of product or whatever if your reputation precedes you to the extent that people find that to be a trustworthy endeavor 
and you can pay them on the back end uh, and uh, fold that money back into the business or into other things uh, without uh, without any ugly uh, you know transaction costs from the uh, the IRS or uh, Her Majesty's Royal Revenue or uh, whoever. And furthermore, the way of doing business. I know very much so that for the, I mean, the, the diamond trade in Tel Aviv predates the Zionist state and the way that they would do, they do business there is no one keeps records of anything. I mean, this is all off the books. And the thing about diamonds is you don't have like proof marks on them. They don't even like gold. You might need to melt down or something like that, but diamonds, you could, they're a perfectly untraceable store of very vast wealth. The only ones that you might be able to recognize are the ones that become famous enough to have their own names or what have you. But even then, there's plenty of ways you can do fraud. I, th- I think um, I think De Beers and has tried to develop they water, tried. watermarking they, they, technologies because yeah. of the uh, the knockoffs from industrial or artificial yeah. diamonds. And they tried to do that also in response to something I think we'll get into a little bit later, which is the whole blood diamond issue. That was a, a attempt yeah. of a PR move on their part to, because what they started doing is the um, – the sets, I believe they're called, or the, the boxes, the kits or whatever that you take to the clients, the, the limited clientele I mentioned, uh, they would have like after the blood diamond thing was going on, they would have these notes in them saying, oh, we can guarantee that these are, you know, perfectly bloodless diamonds. Uh, I, and one more thing I'd like to add, though, to what Hank was saying is that in the process, I mean, diamond thievery is a, is a whole nother thing. And there's all kinds of really interesting stories about this. People have, I mean, having it sent in fish. I mean, there was what happened with the uh, the pink diamonds coming out of Argyle in uh, near Perth in Australia, and uh, this is one of the only producers of pink diamonds in the world. And they would be smuggled. They had uh, 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 airline people smuggling them in like face creams and things of this sort, because the you know the amount of money that you can make off of these, it's very easy to pay off a lot of people that are you know, down, down the line to the security guy at the mines, to the, you know, flight attendant, to what have you. Uh, but I would add in the process of this thievery, because uh, all along the supply chain, there's going to be thievery. It takes place, especially when you have a lot of these diamonds coming from uh, places where people are, you have these Africans or whatever, who are being paid next to nothing to take these things out of the ground that are going to go on to sell hundreds of thousands of dollars per, for a little, a little one of these things. Well, the ones that are they get lo- that get taken out of the chain into the black market, well, they end up passing back through the Jews anyways when they get laundered through Tel Aviv and Antwerp. I mean, in uh, I believe Israel, you have something like fifty uh, percent, I think, of the of the roughs in the entire world pass through Tel Aviv, and then fifty percent of the entire U.S. domestic market of diamonds uh, passes through Tel Aviv. So I guess at this point, it's worth mentioning the great challenge that came to De Beers. And of course, it didn't come from outside of the international Jewish mafia. It came from another uh, another one of the tribe. And that was uh, Alev Leviev, who was an Uzbek. And he is a major Zionist operator to this day. And he, he grew up, his father was a textile merchant, and he emigrated to Israel in 1971 uh, from Uzbekistan, the USSR. And so his family, they converted all of their wealth that they had from being you know, sheep traders uh, into diamonds. 
and apparently the story goes his father when he got to when he got to Israel he was given only uh, 200,000 whatever uh, shekels as opposed to what he had expected something like a million and so his his son of course uh, swears revenge that his father got Jewed <laughs> and he becomes the, the stone merchant in Israel and he forms what's known as the Africa Israel Investment or the AFI group and what happens is that in 1994, say after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia dumps their diamond reserves on the world market. And the, uh, the outfit, the De Beers basically controlled outfit, uh, the CSO, which is the uh, it's like central selling organization or something like this, they're unable to control the influx. And so the prices drop uh, on the world market, like something like 10 to 15%. Because traditionally what De Beers would do is they would buy it. If there was something like that, some great find or what have you, De Beers would swoop in and try to buy it up. Well, this time uh, they got out Jude and uh, Lev buys this up. And this is, this is the beginning of his very powerful firm. And then he's a major Zionist player. I mean, he supports the Lubavitches, gives them like $30 million a year, opens you know Jew schools and the U.S. and Russia even actually apparently. Uh, and what happened was he ended up pushing them out of Angola. And he got the Angolan exclusivity contracts and moved into Namibia and the Urals. And this meant that by you know 2003, the Beers was basically shut out of Angola and as with the Congo as well. And so their market share, which was previously something like 80%, drops down to 60%. So where is it now? Back, back uh, I do where not, it was. I, well, no, they don't control. They, they no longer the monopoly's over. They no longer are the diamond monopoly. Hmm. Interesting. No, it's the a- AFI group is is now a major player. Well, so you it's mentioned- interesting whenever. Go ahead. It, it's interesting whenever you have like a, a market where there's kind of like a a a wholesale oligopoly i guess at least uh even if it's not a monopoly that has a such a huge markup between the wholesale and the uh the retail uh market there's like there's kind of very few products that have that uh that kind of like raw value added at each step even something like gold uh like a gold mine is actually kind of expensive to operate. And then like, if you actually end up with just a chunk of gold, you can bring that to the refiner and they actually charge not a terrible markup. If you just bring them a bunch of nuggets and you're like, Hey, I want a, like a credit Suisse uh, gold bar out of this. Um, they'll happily do that for a fairly small commission. Um, but with diamonds, there's like, I think the, uh, the original, article in that vein it was like reader's digest or something in the 80s but he was like have you ever actually tried to sell a uh, a retail uh, retail packaged diamond have you ever tried to get a quote uh, for your wedding ring and generally speaking uh the answer is that like you know you might get like 10 cents on the dollar 30 cents on the dollar um but you're talking about like the commodity value uh, of the uh, the gold uh, and the diamond much more so than like you know the nice fancy uh, 
the Jared's, uh, the retail experience, uh, which is really what you're paying for when you go to the mall Galleria. Well, because of the, the system that's been set up, you could argue it's not really a commodity because, as you say, you would get for the same physical item that has been worn on a ring as opposed to coming straight from the mines and the, and the cutting facilities and and the whole stamping and approving process, there's that massive markup to the authentic or original diamond. I think what's happening is, and this is uh, going back to economics 102 and the market for lemons, George Akerlof's uh, paper, but when people don't have perfect information or clear information on the quality of a car, for example, the the value depreciates quite a bit because people can't be sure if it's a lemon or not. And so I think the the case might be the case with, with a used ring. It might be a fake. And I think that's a big concern with a lot of uh, secondhand purchases of diamonds. Well, one key difference, though, that's interesting is that even gold, you know, you have various kinds of uh, maker's marks or, you know, various uh, stampings. But the diamond, if you were to compare it to a car or a tractor or whatever, it'd be like if every tractor was just tractor. You know, it, as a as a commodity, it's it's still just tractor. It's not, you know, uh, uh, whatever, Caterpillar or uh, or what have you. It's not a Mercedes or, or, or Volvo. Well, it's the just definition car. of a commodity is something that is only distinguishable by its price. So in other words, a barrel of oil from one, and forget the light, sweet, crude, and different variants of that, but let's just say... You've got the same well, and there's two trucks. And one truck has one barrel, and the other truck has another barrel. They're the same. The only difference is truck one is offering it for 10% less than the other guy. That's the definition of a commodity, when price is the only differentiating factor. And I don't think that's the case with diamonds, because you have quality, you have questions of origin, and all that stuff. And so, it's it, and they're all probably fairly unique, uh, arguably, uh, sort of like snowflakes, right? They're They're... They have different light characteristics. They're cut slightly different sizes and shapes I, and stuff like I that. I really question how much of that is just marketing. Yeah, it sounds like it. No, a lot I of mean, it is, but like be it, that as it may, that is still the case. That's all I'm saying. I've, I've never, like, th- this is like a, a thing that you, you overhear women talking about. It's like, ah, yes, like, you know. My husband, he he really went out of his way to find a perfectly clear, and it's like, well, but, like, yeah, let me get my jeweler's loop and like inspect that bitch. Like, hold still. Like, I, I it's pretty much like, wow, is that a huge rock or uh, or not a uh, not a huge rock? And beyond that, it's like, although that might matter to some sort of a a connoisseur. Uh, it's like, you know, worrying about what kind of oil is in your car. It's like, oh, does that, does that have like a V8 or a V6 under the hood? It's like, well, you know, you, you might notice if you're actually, you know, driving it as an enthusiast, but, uh, somebody watching you cruise down the street, which is really what this car is for, uh, isn't going to uh, be able to perceive a difference. Well, and apparently the real diamond connoisseurs, the ones who appraise the roughs, uh, the, the general culture there is that a cut diamond is a, is a diamond you just ruined. It was a perfectly good diamond, and then when you cut it, you're you're ruining its uh, splendor or what have you. 
Can we talk about how the diamond became a woman's best friend? I know that was a marketing campaign. Yeah, but... there was like some woman who worked for De Beers who was like doing some all nighter. Uh, well, the diamonds are a girl's best friend. That's Marilyn Monroe. Right. But the the tag that De Beers ran with that was like a you know it was like the multi million I mean I guess billion dollar tag uh, was I don't know the woman's name but uh, she was working for them and. Uh, came up uh, she had a deadline or what have you and she just turned out you know diamonds are forever and that that's they own that you know yeah and james and bond <laughs> it's amazing that phrase right yeah it's uh i mean because they had to get terrible movie you know, they, by the way absolutely terrible one of the worst is that the one where they bust in on the uh, moon landing yeah it's just so I, that one no that one's good that one's got the i, didn't I mean like they're it. i didn't like it I don't really the, like the Bond girl was not my taste and the, it was just cheesy. They were trying to make a comedy. It was a very different uh, type of movie. Yeah, but it's got a bunch of interesting stuff going on. Like it's got the Aristotle and NASA stand in who's got like the Howard Hughes. Uh, it like Blofeld is doing the uh, Blofeld yeah. has like the Howard Hughes character stand in, which there, is what people speculated happened to Howard Hughes that he was being held hostage right. by like aristotle or that's, Onassis that's right, on his yeah. island of scorpio you know <laughs> there's that that movie has i don't really care about those i mean those movies are basically a combination of marketing like these luxury products and marketing right uh the, the jewish world order and uh <laughs> i'm not exactly a fan of the bond movies beyond oh, some of them are good but uh yeah I mean, if you want, if you want to read into it, sure. But just I think I, some I, of them are entertaining. Under Majesty's Secret Service is good. But um, but yeah, it's just going back to the the marketing of this stuff. I mean, obviously, jewels, the crown jewels, and royalty. This was a thing. But I gotta imagine the wedding ring with the diamond on it is kind of a new new concept. I don't think that yeah, was but, very common before. But the royalty what, wouldn't necessarily be giving the finest jewels to their women. They would be wearing them themselves. Well, for the family too. I mean, it wasn't so much uh, giving or taking. I think it was just that was a, a source of wealth and a Correct. display that of was, power. That's what De Beers created with their marketing campaign in the 20th century is they created the concept of, uh, you know, giving ma- these a mass gifts market. to women yeah, uh, it's yeah. an investment, honey. Yeah, most yeah, most of the women. I, someone did some study on this, and it's you know most of the diamonds in the possession of women in the United States, even single women, were given to them by men, or at least they were handed down to them by someone by someone who was given it, you know, by a, a man. Yeah, and this is not a universal thing. I've I've met women um, from Greece actually who told me that this is not a tradition where men will give women when they're getting married uh, a diamond ring. It just doesn't happen. No, it was a 20th century creation of, of the, uh, the Jewish diamond syndicate. Yeah. So I, I'd be curious to see what, what, uh, what extent, what, how pervasive it is across the world. This tradition occurs, obviously in America, it's, it's, a, it's a thing, but outside of there, I'm curious. Well, their their marketing campaign is global. I mean, initially it was the American market because the American market is the largest diamond market. But I'm sure that they're, you know, these ads run elsewhere. I mean, I I couldn't tell you. I, I believe America still is the largest. I know that Zuckerberg gave his Chinese wife, uh, I think, a ruby. Yeah, something was like it? that. Yeah, 
which is kind you of interesting. To, you have to remember that he also requested for uh, Xi Jinping to uh, name his firstborn, which uh, didn't he deny? Declined. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> nah, nah, we're good, bro. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Yeah, I mean the the diamond politics. I think I mean again. I don't remember how much he got into this in the South Africa episode. I think perhaps we're going to be overdue for something like that again in the future uh, conversation of that because there's all there's so much to talk about there. Yeah. But in the case of diamonds, it is interesting because I I think the way I interpret what happened in South Africa is because what you had going on, I mean, as people know, is Israel supported the white government uh, up until pretty close to the end when their cohorts in Wall Street uh, pulled the plug and started freezing credit and denying loans and setting off the the end. Uh, But during this time, you had uh, Harry Oppenheimer maintaining relations with the ANC during during apartheid when they're out of power the ANSI exiles and when harry oppenheimer died uh, none other than nelson mandela said of him a great south african of our time and i think the way i'd interpret that is that they were gearing up the, the zionists were generally gearing up to you know put the knife into south africa but they wanted to make sure that they maintained control of the diamond trade so you had uh, De Beers, De Beers man Oppenheimer, you know, making sure that he could work this out with the, the future communist Negro government. And then by the time that he, they felt secure in that, uh, they were able to, to, uh, to stab the government in the back. Well, why, why do you think, uh, I don't even know what to call them, but the Zionists or something, why, why would they want South Africa to go to majority rule? Oh, because it's always in. They're they're confident as long as they're the short term is, is short up. They're conf, they're always going to prefer a you know multiracial government to one that can develop its own national identity and national power mm-hmm. because that could be a threat. I mean, so they just what want happen, weaker, what if, weaker. Yeah, what uh, happens if a, a white South African uh, comes into control of these of these diamond mines? Then it's no longer in Jewish hands. I mean, they could have, they could have done a lot of damage to the international Jewish mafia this way. It's interesting though that they perceive, because I mean, like after the decolonization went into effect throughout all of Africa after World War II, a lot of the colonial powers obviously lost control. Now, and that control shifted mainly to the corrupt kleptocratic governments that were run by. Africans, but why would the Jews necessarily have a greater chance of success with them as opposed to with a white colonial government? Because they, they can't really blend in like they do with the whites. Um, it's no, I mean, most blacks just view Jews as white people. So why? It's like what? Why does the? I get the theory, the but of, in practice, do you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, why did they the NAACP out. have a Jewish president? <laughs> <laughs> no, because they already, yeah, that, that America is a different case, though, because. You're... Is it? I mean, just like the Jews supported the colonial efforts uh, in Africa and then switched to supporting the African rebels and the communist African regimes 
in America, they supported uh, the chattel slavery in, in the South. They mm-hmm. supported the plantation system. Yeah. And then when the time came, uh, they supported the civil rights movement. I mean, it's it's what's there's the immediate interests, and then there's the longer term interests. So and I, I view America they, as like okay, they want to weaken the host so they can gain a stronger foothold. But in the case of South Africa, if they weaken the host to the point where it's no longer existent, they can't really inhabit it. I, I view the, the the whites as very essential to a lot of the Jewish strategy because they can they can infiltrate the, those organizations. But in Africa. How does a white guy or a Jewish guy infiltrate? I mean, you stand out like a sore thumb. That's what I'm saying. It's it's you don't need to, you dynamic. don't need to infiltrate. You just control their organs of power in their organization. How do you do you that though? In the case of by being I mean, smarter I, I know, than the but... African and having more money than the African and being able to lead the African along by the nose because he's a creature okay, driven so, entirely so by the, base passions. Is that the case today? <laughs> I, I mean, I, that makes more sense. I mean, because you you have more of a a potent rival, perhaps, with uh, yeah, a guy like uh, Eugene Terra Blanche, obviously uh, yelling at you, as opposed to uh, Nelson Mandela, who I don't know. I don't really know too much about Nelson, but he seems to be uh, a little bit more corruptible. So, in the case of South Africa today, and I know this isn't the topic of the show, but I'm just curious if you know. I mean, his what wife was tied Jewish in. Influence. His Winnie Mandela was tied in heavily with the. Uh, Jewish uh, casino vice trade stuff going on in, yeah. in Africa. Yeah, okay, I believe that. Yeah. How you about know, the, he, the current governments? Do you, do you have any knowledge? I mean, these people, like all this stuff about, uh, you know, liberation and stuff, I mean, it's all a ruse for the, the, the very, these people are all their own kind of shysters. People like Mandela. I mean, they're, they don't, they don't really give a shit about the African. If they did, then uh, they would know that African government isn't mm-hmm. the best thing for the African. Okay. So they're just more corruptible. They're easier to sort of work your, yeah. your And the your, diamond your mines have kept with. flowing. Okay. The only place mm-hmm. that you had any real problems with uh, diamond production was what was happening in Sierra Leone. Uh, and, you know, the late diamond wars, mm-hmm. talk, talk about the blood diamonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that, though, what happened was you know, the British government places an embargo. And this is, again, this is back, this is when the uh, AFI is really maneuvering in a better position than De Beers because what happens is the diamond exchange in Tel Aviv basically says that they're going to revoke any kind of uh, me- membership to people who deal with the, the rebels and you know, places like Sierra Leone and Goa or the Congo. But what this allowed for was AFI and uh, the other big one, the IDI, or IDI, I think IDI Diamonds, it's called, uh, to get a, exclusive contracts in these places. You know, and, and the thing about the diamond, I mean, they control the float. I mean, it's not a big deal to have production shut down. You know, what what is a big deal is if competitors start coming in and obtaining the roughs and not going through the proper, you know, sanctioned channels, their channels, you know, you can't have any competitors coming in and who, who, could, who could be it, maybe Chinese or Russians or someone. So the dynamics of the, of the blood diamond and the diamond wars, I mean, they, as long as you control the, the chains, which they do, these things can never really hurt these people. If anything, they can, they allow opportunities for sort of restructuring their operations, which are the favored firms in, in the broader syndicate. Yeah, um, actually, I, I saw Blood Diamond years ago in the theater, 
It's uh, it's with Leonardo DiCaprio and um, a couple other famous actors. Uh, Jennifer Connelly, the black guy. You've, you've probably seen him in a few other movies. Yeah, Jen- but Jennifer Connelly plays like the archetypical like left, leftist, woman. Yeah. yeah, leftist journalist woman. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the movie's quite good. I, I enjoyed it a lot, and it does portray how disgusting uh, this industry is. I would say, at least at the the root of how violent that conflict was in particular. And, you know, the ending is sort of uh, a little bit cheesy, but they, they conclude that there's now a, a new governing body called the Kimberly process that authenticates all these diamonds so that, as you said, they're blood free. Uh, process. <laughs> well, we got to have more nice white ladies sitting in a room <laughs> checking boxes, you know, that'll, that'll make it safe, right? Is your certification in order, sir? Ah, yes. (laughs) Like that's that's just like the the I don't I don't think it even qualifies as hubris because it's it, it doesn't even purport to be really any kind of a solution. Like everybody knows ab initio that like okay well. The problem that we're trying to solve is that this area of the world is so fucked up that, like, ipso facto, any product coming out of this area is probably going to be associated with something that gives us the wrong kind of tingles. So, like, the solution for, like, all commerce in this part of the world we consider to be painted is to have a process that that certifies that things that come out of here are no they're actually no super cool you can trust us like the, the idea that you know well but you can you can put the stuff on a truck and you can bring it elsewhere right like that's that's what you do to get it out of the place in the first place so you're telling me if if a truck goes from this particular area to some different area, that that's, that's not going to happen because of your, your wonderful process that you have instated. It's about as dumb as saying we can regulate the trade and sale of drugs. I mean, it's, it's about as stupid. There's no evidence to support the conclusion that it's uh it's doable i mean you you've got so much money on the table and so much potential for corruption and the iq requirement is basically non-existent and so all you need is force to control the stuff it's a natural resource it's you you literally dig it out of the ground with the shovel in that part of the world and because labor is very cheap that's literally what they do they have children digging in holes with shovels and it's not even diamonds. I mean, that after Blood Diamond became a thing with that movie, they uh, they started kind of broadening it to the notion of conflict diamond or uh, conflict minerals, which really means like when you talk about ore, like you know rare earth metal ores, it, it literally is like a guy with a shovel being like, well, the dirt in this particular area is pretty valuable, so. Like, after you get past the dirt layer, like, just scoop up this gravel and, like, put it in the truck. 
Here's like here's a do- here's a dollar. And like the uh, again, like the the idea that you can purport to certify, well, these rocks are blessed rocks, and these other rocks are not blessed rocks. It's clear that the actual intention is just to uh, have effectively a nice white lady tax on the extraction of whatever commodity. And the goal isn't to, in any real sense, regulate or control or clamp down on the actual activity. It's to make sure that these useless fucking NGOs get their cut. Basically, you have Kunta Quinte discovers that he takes shovel to ground and pulls out rock and gives rock to man with hook nose and man with hook nose gives him crate of AK 47s. That's pretty much the movie. <laughs> although, although the hook nose is portrayed by DiCaprio. So, but, um, yeah, he was actually supposed to be, I think, uh, a Rhodesian. That's, that was his backstory. And so he had, he had learned the art of war and he was in hot demand well, in Sierra That's Leone. why he has to die in the end, because he has that's to right. atone for his sins of racisms. <laughs> I don't know if that's his real sin. I think it's just his, the sin of the movie is like cynicism or something. Sure it is. He's all jaded because it's implied he's killed a bunch of uh, you know Africans. I guess. I Honestly, I, mean, I didn't get that impression. He's a Rhodesian mercenary. That was his trade. Yeah, I, I didn't get the impression the movie was trying to make you feel guilty about killing blacks, per se. It was just his lifestyle overall. I think it was just a, a general general um, no, commentary well, he's a white Afri- on the mercenary he's a white life. African, and right. therefore he must be punished. Okay. And that's his redemption arc, you know. And, the, and then the white, nice white liberal lady gets to, you know, he, he dies so nice white lady liberal Nice white liberal lady. Well, she can take the black guy to, to, the UN, to Paris yeah, take, wearing a suit. And, yeah, take Kunta Quinte to the UN yeah. and be like, you know, this is really sad. And then he goes up and cries. And then they say that we're going to pass a resolution. Um, this a resolution to establish a process to certify <laughs> that actually, uh, you know, we got the right form. So, uh, Kunta, you got to get back in the slave mines. Sorry. <laughs> we don't make the rules. It's all part of life's rich pageant. 